0: You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, uh, it was six years ago, actually tomorrow, that if you were a part of Rockland at that time, you woke up coming to church with the intentions of being very judgmental because that was the Sunday that I came up here and I preached a sermon and then everybody, I left and then you all talked about me and decided if you liked me or not from one sermon and then we came back in and I'm so grateful you had some collective lapse of judgment (laughs) And I'm so grateful, and so we're so glad to be here. But I have to say, during that whole process, I was very impressed with a couple things that Rockland did, in particular. One of the things that they did that I thought was really wise was I met, I didn't just meet with one group of people, and that was it. I met with bunches of people, and then when I, there was a a main group, like a search team, and then there were the elders, and there was some overlap. But then I would meet with people, and I would get, um, a pair of them would come in, and they'd talk about this aspect, this theological idea, or whatever it was, this concept. And another pair would come in and they would talk about something else and something else and something else. And so the idea was everybody was focused and thinking about one particular thing to talk with me about. And um, everybody asked different things, except there seemed to be one question or one recurring theme through all the different groups that I visited with. There was one um, one question that came up in just very different forms from all the different people that I met with, even though they're talking about very different things. They would ask questions and it came out something like this. Who are some of the people that you read? Who are some of the the pastors that you follow on social media? What are some of the the churches or the ways of thinking that have influenced you? What, What seminary did you go to? They would ask these kinds of questions, ask who I read, what churches I watch online, what podcasts I listen to, things like that. And they're asking for a very logical reason and you probably already know what it is. Because if I name a whole bunch of people that are real um, academic and scholarly, then they probably get an idea of, okay, that's gonna inform what Jim does. And so he'll do the academic scholarly sort of thing or the opposite if it's just sort of, some fluffier kind of stuff, very, very, um, you know, not a lot of meat, not a lot of depth, topical, just kind of that kind of thing. They'd go, okay, those people are influencing Jim, and so he'll probably be like that as well. Or if I say, you know, if I mention all these charismatic people, um, then you can probably think, well, that's probably what Jim would do as well. And the reason that you, they ask the question, and the reason that you know why they ask the question is, th- is this. Because you can tell a lot about a person by who they are follow. You can tell a lot about a person by who they follow. And I'm going to guess that you know this. Because think about this. If we were to do this exercise, all right, if we were to say, let's together figure out the five biggest divisive issues of our time and write them out. And then I were to say, so do this now. Go find somebody in the congregation that you've never met before. You know nothing about them. And don't talk about these things. Go and ask them who they follow. Go and ask them, um, at night, which news channel do you turn on? When you wake up in the morning and you go to a news website, uh, which one do you go to? Which, which gatherings do you go to? Demonstrations or political gatherings, which ones do you go to? Who do you really listen to to shape you? Do you have podcasts you listen to? Do you have the, the emails that you subscribe to that you get them on a daily basis? Blogs that you go and read, those kinds of things. And if you were just to go find out all those person's inputs and find out who they follow, my guess is this. My guess is, remember those five topics? You don't even need to talk about those, but if you find out what news channel they listen to and how they're influenced, you could probably go back and try to write a profile of the person about what they think about those five things. And my guess is we would probably average like a B. Like we would pretty well know that because you can tell a lot about a person by who they follow. And it's not just about who they follow, it's actually more than that. It's not just who you follow, but how you follow. In fact, in our world today, we have this unwavering allegiance to this a monolithic way of thinking of this is my ideology and this is how I follow. These are the people I follow and I follow. And and oftentimes it's, I want to ignore what others might say. I am on this path. I am following them. And so that's why, because we have people we follow. We have this way that we follow them, which is this big allegiance to certain sides and certain teams that um, the topics today can break even friends and families apart. Um, Everybody else lives this way and Christians ought to be different. We can do this, but there's one way and there's one way alone that we can do this. We can have actual unity and fellowship and you can have peace and harmony with people no matter what is going on outside these walls. Or as I phrased it, we can have harmony in the hectic or if you prefer, peace in the pandemonium. Whatever is going on around us, God has sovereignly designed a way that we might have Harmony with one another, regardless of what's going on outside. You can have Christian brothers and sisters be this uh, eye of the storm with everything else that's happening. So let me show you from this text how, and then we're going to land on a very, very practical, two very practical ways to do this. We'll see this through the story of Levi, and you just heard Steve read it. Um, Now, it's Levi. It's really Matthew. So Levi is what he's generally called before he's called, and then Matthew is what he's called when he's listed with the the lists of the 12 uh, disciples. So this is the disciple Matthew, the apostle. And um, probably what happened is he had the name Levi, and then when he came to faith, when when he followed Christ, he got a new name, Matthew, which means gift of Yahweh, probably that Jesus Gave to him. So this is the story of Matthew. I'm actually gonna jump down to the second part because the idea of how can we have peace and unity and harmony between brothers and sisters in Christ, the second part of the text is actually one of the first ways that we try to do it. And it sounds like wisdom, but it's not. So look at verse 29 first. So this is after Jesus has called Levi and then they go to his house. So it says in verse 29, and Levi or Matthew made him, that's Jesus. So Matthew made Jesus a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now this text we read and something happens within us that we go, good, preach that. That Jesus goes to the people that society said, no, thank you, you're too bad. And Jesus goes, I'm gonna go make a point to go and these religious people aren't gonna like it because they've lost their way. I'm gonna go and I am going to sit with them, to have a meal with them. It was a very radical thing in that culture. You're not supposed to do that if you're a religious person. And so what happens is, listen, I, I could preach this, I could talk about this anywhere, I could talk about this, if I, if I were at an atheist conference, I don't know why I'd be at an atheist conference, say I'm at an atheist conference and they ask me to speak for some reason and I start to speak, I could say, well, one of the things about Jesus and I could tell this story and they might go, I don't really believe in God, but if that's true, I kind of like that aspect about Jesus. And you go across denominations and people would go, I don't know about all this other stuff, but boy, this idea of his compassion on the sinners, that's a really great thing. And so what can happen is the way we try and get unity is go, let's find the things that everybody in the world likes and just talk about those. That is the church unification strategy in America in 2021. Let's take all these other things that may cause some tension and just forget about them. And let's just whittle it down and just focus in on the things that at least we perceive everybody likes. And the Pharisees didn't like it. Their scribes didn't like it. You'll see throughout the New Testament, the Sadducees didn't like it either. And what they were really doing, so the Pharisees were people who said, um, they said there's not just the Old Testament, there's also oral law, uh, oral tradition that should be on the same level as the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees are watching all this and they're going, we have the the Bible, the Old Testament, but also we have our teachings. So they added to the Bible. The Sadducees on the other hand would go through and they didn't like parts of the Bible. In fact, they just took the first five books of the Bible and they ripped out the rest of them and said, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the only ones that matter. And so as you can imagine, here they are and you've got some that have too many books in their Old Testament, some that have too few books in the Old Testament and uh, both as religious religious leaders, so to speak, in their time, and here's Jesus that goes in, and he goes and he sits with tax collectors and sinners. When we think, let's just take out anything and everything that might possibly offend, what we're really doing is just being more sophisticated Pharisees and Sadducees. We are taking the scriptures and we are looking at them and looking at them in light of the day and adding what we want to add and deleting what we want to delete. We take the word of God. I I met a a seminary professor. Oh, I won't say which seminary. This is about to be bad. I won't say which seminary. I met a seminary professor, um, and he was in church planting. And uh, I, I talked to him. I was out there for something else, and I, I met him. And, uh, <clears throat> and he said, you know, I, I asked about church planting because I don't know anything about it. It's where you go start other churches. And uh, he said, he, I think he thought I was interested in doing it. And so he kind of kicked into that mode and he said, do you know the number one thing that I tell anybody that wants to go plant a church? And I had no idea what he was about to say because I didn't know anything about it. And I thought, no, that's why I'm asking you questions. And he said, do you know the number one thing, the main thing of anything else? And then he sat there and waited. And so I just said, to pray a lot? And his answer was, nope. And he moved on to, he said, the number one thing that I tell people who are wanting To plant a church is he said don't ever talk about touchy topics that beat prayer by the way as the thing you're supposed to do and he explained why and I'm sitting there listening going that doesn't seem right that seems a little strange and really it was basically just going just don't talk about all those things in fact all those things swirling in the culture come when they come to when people come to church let's not talk about them it's all the things that are on our minds So we don't just wanna go gangbusters and just like, ah, let's just rip all these Band-Aids off. But at the same time, being here together or being in Christian community with a brother and sister needs to be a place that we can have those conversations. If we just say, well, those are all off the table, that's not peace. That's not real harmony with our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a better way to do it. And so I got to show you this story about, um, about Levi here. So if you remember what's just happened, um, Jesus has been, um, he, uh, he was baptized. He went through his temptations. He started his ministry, immediately rejected at Nazareth. And then he goes and um, he, he, um, he moves over by the Sea of Galilee. He heals people. He's preaching in synagogues. And he calls, if you, just, if you recall, a bunch of these Jewish fishermen to come and follow him and they leave all their nets and they go and they walk with him. He healed a leper, he healed a paralytic. And then it says in verse 27, so I'm backing up from where we just were. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. What did Matthew, what did Levi, what did he do? When it says he left everything, here's what it means. Um, He is there with his job security, with his financial security, which a lot of times we equate to, that's my future security that I have. I'm doing this job and I am in good with the Roman Empire. This is all his security, all his money. Not sure if he had a family uh, or not. That would be a tough conversation, I think, to go home to your wife. What happened at work today? I just left everything. I got up and I started wandering after this Jewish rabbi named Jesus that came by. Really? What's, the, what's his plan? What's gonna happen? Well, I don't know. I didn't think to ask him his plan. That's gonna go pretty well, isn't it? If you think about it, if you go, if I'm only gonna follow you if I know the plan, that's not really trust. That's, I'm gonna do what I want anyway. It's just now I kind of want Jesus maybe with me. Jesus is an impressive guy, and so I will, I will follow him. So what does he do? He left security, safeties, money, maybe a family. He completely shifted one team to the other team for Rome to now a follower of Jesus. This is, this is pretty remarkable what he's doing. Immediately, he gets up and follows him. <clears throat> you know, when I, think of, when I think of how most people um, that I have talked to, when we share Christ with someone who's not a Christian, we generally give them the idea that the Christian life can be lived like this. I drew an awesome picture for you. There we go. All right, <clears throat> now... That is not, as one person said, a man wearing a cape. It is a person carrying a bag. Dragging, I do have to tell you to see it though. Now all I can see is a cape. Thanks, Grace. Now that's all I can see is a cape. It's a guy dragging a bag. That's a terrible bag. The more I look at it, I apologize. But he's dragging a bag. This is the person who has their stuff. This is the way that they're living. This is my plans, my family, my money, my retirement, my everything. And then says, I'm gonna follow Christ and oh, I'll follow him. And pick it up and then going like this, dragging all the old you behind you as you go to follow Christ. There was a guy who was in my office and saw this awesome picture and asked what it was, and I told him, and he said, are you showing a clip from this movie? And I said, no, what movie? And I found it, and I went and watched it, and many of you may have seen it. The, um, the movie, The Mission, it's got um, Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons, and um, Liam Neeson is in it, and um, it's a story about um, these Jesuit priests that are building a mission in South America way back like in the, in the jungle. And Robert De Niro has his old life and now he is going to leave that and he is going to go and he is going to, he actually becomes a Jesuit priest and he's going to go and he is now going to be at this uh, mission in the middle of the jungle. And there is a scene in the middle of the movie that is probably, I bet you it's four or five solid minutes with no talking. And it's just these sweeping shots of the, the forest, the jungle, excuse me, and uh, it shows Robert De Niro, Mendoza, and it shows him leaving his old life and going to this new one. And the way he's doing it is he's got, if you've seen it, you know the scene, this huge rope, and there's this huge like uh, rope kind of ball behind him, and he has all of his possessions stuffed into that. And it just, just for several minutes, just shows his struggle of trying to climb up the side of this cliff with water running off it, of trying to, to go up these rocks to get back to where the, the mission is. And everybody's just looking at him. And everybody else is not having a hard time doing it, but he is, because he has 100 pounds or something behind him that he's dragging and trying to pull with him. There's still no talking yet, this whole scene. And he's climbing and climbing and he finally gets there and everybody else is fine and he is exhausted. And he's just breathing real heavy and everybody's looking at him. And then finally, one of the natives gets a machete and goes over and just starts, you have seen it? Just starts hacking at the rope, cuts it in two and kicks the thing over the side and it tumbles down and all his possessions just right there. And finally, somebody speaks or at least something comes out of somebody's mouth. He has, Robert De Niro's character, Mendoza, has this cathartic experience and just breaks into this um, hysterical laughter. And then all of a sudden he just starts sobbing and then he goes back to laughing and then he goes back to sobbing and he's going through the joy and the pain of saying, I'm leaving my old life behind to go and to be a follower of God in this new place that's an image of what it means to come to faith in Christ or one way to think of it the way I'm phrasing it is to live life Christ first to live life Christ first I don't need to bring all my other baggage with me. I don't wanna have all my own opinions, all my own plans, all my own stuff. I wanna come and say, Christ, I am following you first and foremost. And I just made a mistake because I said, this is remarkable what Matthew does. And the reality is, if you look at it, this is normal. Paul writes his New Testament letters, many of them from a prison cell. Most of the disciples were, either, were martyred for their faith. They are going to follow Christ. And what happens when they go to follow him? Well, the foxes have a place to sleep. We may not have a place to sleep. This is normal in their day. John, exiled on the island of Patmos, writing the book of Revelation. This is normal for a follower of Christ in that day and age to say, I will leave it all behind me. I have a new way of thinking, a new way of living, and I will follow you. And if we're going to be followers of Christ, we ought to model what his first followers did. There's nothing that is more unifying among Christians. And this is where I want to go that, that no matter what happens out there, Christians can unify only if we are people that say, we are Christ first. Christ is what matters first and foremost. And let me just explain how this works. So, Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors, many of you know, was, um, they had chief tax collectors. We'll see Zacchaeus in a few weeks was a chief tax collector, which means there's, um, there's other tax collectors below him and so all these middlemen, so now you know, skimming off the top, you've gotta to pay other people to do this, but it was already super corrupt. And uh, I I think of when I, I went to Cuba on a mission trip, been a couple times, and you would go and you would get, you would walk in this room and it's all these Cubans in their camo and guns strapped across here. And then they're also just puffing Cuban cigars indoors just constantly. So it's just this huge wall of smoke you're walking through. This is at the airport, by the way, to go and show them your bag. And they open up your bag and they ask you, how much is all that worth? And then when they look at your bag, and if you say, oh, it's about $300, guess how much the tax is to get that into the country? $300. And so we knew this going in. And so we got there and we, we put the bag out and there's just my stuff, I have like three bags and stuff spilling out everywhere. And they go, well, how much is all this worth? And we said, $5. And they went, well, you owe us $5. And I could see them like high-fiving, like, hey, we got them. But all you have to do is you just go say a number and whatever it is, they just go, okay, well then you owe us that. You could have, you could have smuggled like a Tesla and be like, it's five bucks. And they would go, oh, that's let's go. okay, $5, you know, to get the thing in, whatever it is. Like price is really coming down on Tesla, I guess. Whatever it is, you just say the number and then that's it. Well, the, the tax collectors here could do a similar thing. They would tax, it was boys over 14 and girls over 12. You could get them and stop them and search them. And then you could tax them whatever you wanted to tax them and you would have to pay it. Some of them had these real large territories, but they would put themselves specifically in very strategic locations, and Rome liked to get locals and put them in that location. So then it's, so think about this. It's, these are like your friends now, but your allegiance has to be to Rome, and you can make a ton of money by just getting money from your neighbors from your friends. You talk about a tense situation. I would not want that job. The Jews would actually think that if a Jew, like Levi, Matthew, would choose to be a tax collector, he is choosing Rome over God, and it was treason against God. In Jewish tradition, when it talks about tax collectors, it aligns them most most with robbers. Tax collectors, if you didn't pay, could crucify People publicly to scare you into paying, so uh, everybody else would. That's what Matthew did. And it says in another gospel, it says that he his table that he leaves is by the sea. And then here it says they go to his house, and where is it? It's it's nearby. It's by the sea. So are you catching what's happening? This is Levi is a Jew that has sold out to Rome, is extorting people for money, the very people who are around the Sea of Galilee, specifically Jewish fishermen. And what does God say? Follow me. I got a bunch of guys you'll fit in great with. Oh, really? Who are they? Bunch of Jewish fishermen from the Sea of Galilee. Can you imagine Jesus walking over? We got a new guy to add to our bunch. And they go, oh, that's great, hey, hey. I feel like I've seen you. This isn't just, oh, you're a tax collector, which means you're a betrayer. This is, you have betrayed us personally. You have taxed us personally. And Jesus goes, yeah, you guys get together. This would be Joe Biden walking into his cabinet meeting and saying, I have a new advisor. His name's Donald Trump, welcome him, bring him in. Honestly, the best example I could think of of this would be if it was decades ago in the United States and at an African-American church, a pastor gets up and says, we have a new member who has given his life to Christ. He is leaving his old way behind him and they bring somebody up and it is the leader of the KKK in their area. And people are watching and going, wait a minute, him? That guy? He, that guy, That he's not just a bad guy. He has, he has done stuff to our family. He has burned crosses on our lawn. And they're going, yes, that's his old self. That's who he was. Now he's new in Christ. And as awkward as that just felt, it would have been 10 times as awkward back then. But what happens? In the face of Christ, since they are Christ followers first and foremost... They figure it out. In fact, if you watch, we're here today because those 12 fulfilled that mission. In Acts chapter 17, it says, um, these people that have turned the world upside down have now come here also. This thing worked. We could go through, we, we did a series on this a while back to go through and look at all the disciples and look at the group that Jesus brought together and you go, how in the world should they ever get along? And the way they got along is they lived lives that were Christ first. And so can we. We can live lives that are Christ first. It's radical in our culture. It's very normal biblically to live our lives that way. Now, there's a couple of practices that you can put into place that can help reinforce this in your life. And I wanna um, share them with you. The question is, how can we live a life that is Christ first? And I'll give you two quick things. One is to give first and the other is to pray first. How can we live a life that is Christ first? We have to be people that give first and pray first. Um, I thought, well, I'll start with the first one. I had thought that I was living a Christ first life until I actually started to give of my money and give of my time. Because otherwise what I found was my, my mindset was this is, is my money and my time and my stuff and my life and my dreams and my hopes and I would not relinquish those to God. And so I would just hold back all the different things that I wanted. And part of saying I am a follower of Christ is to say, give first. This happened... Um, this happened to here uh, one year. I got a bonus at the a Christmas bonus. And um, I went home and I thought, oh, I know some, we can go on nice dinner. And I had some things I thought we could do with it. And uh, I went home to Nikki and I, had, I was like, hey, I got some stuff we could do and save some, and that kind of thing. It wasn't like a huge amount, but I had some ideas. And I went home and I said, hey, guess what? We got the little bonus, it's this much. And she goes, oh, that's great. She said, I've been thinking about this because uh, maybe we could give some extra money to our compassion child in Bolivia. Oh dang! Yeah, that's good. Yeah, your idea is better. My first instinct had to become: What can I do with this? I just got this. What can I do? Get some free time. What do I want to do? What do I want to do with it? There's a fundamental shift in thinking that says um, my money, my time, or time, talent, treasure. Sometimes you hear. I think Warren Wirsby is the first I know of to say that is mine. It it is mine. Like my money and my time is mine the same way that um, if uh, if I were to go and you you were to say, why don't you get in my car and we can go over to my house and have, have a bite to eat. And if I were to go, is it really your car? Or would the credit union have something to say about that? Where's the actual title of the car? And we're going to your house. You say it's your house, but does Chase Bank own the house or do you own the house. Well, we understand. We go, yeah, yeah, it's my house. It's my car. It's my, it's my stuff. But yeah, the reality is it's someone else ultimately that owns it. One of the things that came to mind for me is um, all my time, talent, and treasure was, <clears throat> to be quite honest, spent on a world that won't be around forever. Instead of focusing on how can I use that on the kingdom that will endure for all time. We give First, Christians are notoriously generous. And in fact, if I can just say to young people, when, as you get older, you tend to realize this more and more. You get the old, can't take it with you kind of stuff. And people, as they get older, tend to see joy in giving freely of their time and their resources. Second thing is pray first. This is how we can become Christ first. Maybe to a, a married man, let's say, that is, um, oh, you and your wife just have that one spot of tension And so you're gonna sit down and you are gonna talk this through. You know one of the best things to do? Before you talk about the issue, say, can we just say a prayer together and just pray? Not some perfunctory like, Lord, help me not kill him, something like that. (laughs) I mean, God, we love you and we trust you and we're mad at each other right now. Would you do a miracle in our life and in our marriage? you'd be amazed what happens if you stop and you pause and you pray. Do you you know I'm a very, very prideful person? You know one of the things that can help keep me humble? On Sunday mornings, I get up, now I'm about to tell you what I do to be humble. That seems a bit odd. But I come up here on Sunday mornings and I just walk around and I pray, 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 pray. And most of that, what I'm saying is God break me of my pride this morning. And then uh, I meet with the the musicians and we pray at 745. We pray, 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 pray. And then we go, okay, we need to go through the service now. We go through the service. Then I meet with the staff at eight o'clock and we just do a quick standing prayer and set our minds and hearts. And then uh, we meet with the volunteers that are gonna be in the service, the communion servers and all of them. And we just pray, 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 pray. And so what happens is I'm praying against pride, but just by praying and praying and praying, what starts to happen is you you start to think of these supernatural things. You start to think of the divine and you start feeling so, small. And all of a sudden, my pride, even if I don't say, God, take my pride today, there's something that goes, when I am communicating with God and he is listening, it changes a heart. When we have meetings here, man, we pray before the meetings. And I'm, I'm adamant about, um, we don't just do perfunctory prayers before a meeting. Oh, we're a church. We should, someone who's going to do the obligatory prayer. All right, you got it. Good. Be quick because we got stuff to get to. That's not what happens. In fact, churches this is just Jim's research, so it may be wrong. Churches that get very um, political, I mean, church politics, not like out there politics, tend to have meetings where prayer is not a priority. I hate church politics. I love Rockland because we don't do that. And I'm convinced one of the biggest reasons is when, when we gather, we pray first. And then we think Christ first. <clears throat> when we give first and we pray first, we become Christ first. When we give first and we pray first, we become Christ first. I have two quick stories I wanna tell you. Um, This uh, Wednesday morning was see you at the pole where um, you go to the school and then they gather around the flagpole and you pray. And my wife came in Tuesday night and said, do you wanna go do that with Hannah tomorrow? And I said, yeah, that'd be be fine. She's a junior. I said, yeah, that'd be fine. She goes, if it helps in your decision, um, she only has two of these left before she goes to college. It did help in my decision. <clears throat> we went to school and I was about in tears the entire time it was so beautiful. We went to Faith Christian where they go to school and um, it was there were a bunch of teachers there, a bunch of adults there, but it was all teenagers that were leading everything. And two, two of them were up there and one was playing, the guy was playing, the girl was singing and they, they had a song that they were singing and I sort of knew the song, but they didn't pass out any lyrics. And so um, I, I thought, well, I kind of know the song. I can kind of garble my way through it or what was, and um, I assumed, I was like, well, I guess all these kids know it or they would have passed out lyrics. No, kids are getting their phone and going, what song is this? And Googling the lyrics so they can sit there and sing along. But what ended up happening is they didn't get to the lyrics. And so a few of them know it. Most of them didn't. And so they were doing the thing where it was kind of, and then you'd get to a word. And then maybe you knew the word at the end of the phrase. So it was Jesus, like real loud. And then you would go, and then you're piecing together what rhymes with Jesus, what would make sense. And so it's going to eat some cheez or whatever it was. Uh, there's not a song that has Jesus in it. Sorry, but you have something you're like, I know. And so you like get loud at that moment. And here, so that's what it was the entire time. The entire time they're singing this song and I'm sitting there listening to these kids and I'm watching all of them going, they go to school together, they're in their little clumps, they know each other a little bit and it got to the chorus and it's a song by Phil Wickham called Our God Saves. And so all you heard was... And then it got to the chorus and you heard about 50 of them just belt out, our God saves, our God saves, says, Our God saves, when it came back to the chorus. And I thought, what's unifying to these people? That gospel message that God saves sinners. They in unison cried out, our God saves. And some of them that don't hang out any place outside of school were brothers and sisters in that moment. I went to, um, uh, my in-laws are in town. They'll be at the, the late hour with my family, but um, we went to Lake Tahoe this summer and um, I, had a, I had something happen to me. I'd actually heard another pastor share this story and I went, ooh, because I'm stealing a line from his wife um, that I'll share with you and you can steal it. But um, our kids were just coughing up like anything. And so I'd said, I'll go get some, cough drops or something from the, from the pharmacy, from CVS. So we're at Lake Tahoe, we were on the Cali side, and I went up, I drove up uh, by myself to go to the CVS to get cough drops and anything to stop my kids from hacking, basically. And um, it was one big line, and there's a guy over here and a lady over here, and I, I got in her line, or I, she was next, so I went over to her line. And I start walking up to her, and we're wearing masks, and so, and I was, was kind of like, I don't really want to Talk to anybody, you know, and so I'm. So I just walked up and I'm um, oh, I'm good, thank you. You know, that was. We were back and forth, and then I noticed that she had on a cross necklace, and I saw. I just kind of for a minute, just sort of took in the whole picture here, and I felt a little weird about to acknowledge that she had on a cross necklace because um, we male, female, um, 40-something, 20-something, so I'm almost 20 years older than she was. Um, <clears throat> she's from California. She, uh, I'm from here, Texas and here. She's, uh, she had tattoos everywhere. She had, um, I don't know her ethnicity. She wasn't Caucasian. I don't know her ethnicity. She had a really cool-sounding accent. Um, she had tattoos. She had Piercings like everywhere. Like you would put the two of us next to each other and you would go, You have nothing in common whatsoever. You two should never talk. And I saw her cross necklace and I said, I see your cross necklace. And, um, you know, I'm a Christian and a lot of us wear something like that to remind us of our faith. I swear this happened. She pulls her mask down clutches her cross and has a smile that just lights up the whole pharmacy and loud as can be goes, I'm a Christian too. And I imagine the people around us looking and going, what is happening? Why is he talking? Why are they acting like their best friends? They look nothing alike. These two would never hang out in real life. And all of a sudden, all I knew about her was she was a follower of Christ. And all she knew about me was I was a follower of Christ. And we had the most wonderful five or so minutes of just a conversation about our lives and our faith. If you want refuge and you want peace in the pandemonium, we gather as people that give first and pray first. And we live a life That is Christ first.